Good evening, everyone. Uh, it's good to be back, honestly. Uh, last week, Roy looked at Roy Gamble, uh, one of the pastors here, looked at the only parable or the only tale of the unexpected, where one of the characters is given a name, uh, and that's the rich man and Lazarus. And tonight what we're going to do is we're going to look at the only parable in the New Testament where God features as one of the characters. It's the only parable in the New Testament where God steps on all and all over the scene. And one of the logical conclusions I can, I can only come to as I think about that is that the subject matter, the issue that is being addressed must carry significant weight. If Jesus writes God into his short story, then the core topic for discussion must be highly significant. So what is it? What is our theme for this evening? And Paul has really helped us to get into this. Because according to some, it's one of the three fundamental causes of all our social problems. Alongside ignorance and apathy, is this thing we're going to look at. It's described as a sin of excess. And in certain church traditions, it's one of the seven deadly sins. Who knows what it is? Don't say it yet. It features in the Ten Commandments right at the end. And according to the Apostle Paul, it's a form of idolatry. And it almost caused John Terry to move from Chelsea to Manchester City if you believe everything you read. So what am I referring to? Great question. I wonder how many of us would turn down an extra £70,000 a week for doing something we love. He gets paid 130000 on his new contract. He was offered £200,000 a week. And I can stand in judgment. But I've often wondered, if I was there, what would I do? Where there is a need, there is always greed. A rotten, exploiting deed that manifests with speed. Where there are mouths to feed, read between the lines and take heed. Lurking around is an inspiring greed, ready to take advantage and proceed. Even when there is no need to succeed, by now it is agreed, there is always greed. Our desire for more always exceeds our needs. Hence, wealth, power and greed have always been married. We always want more. Sometimes I don't know what for. I read to understand what generation of breed has given birth to this senseless weed. Because life is a circle of endless greed. I urgently need to know, I plead, who planted this seed of greed to deliberately mislead, wrote Sylvia Chida in 2006. Greed, it's a senseless weed. I love that description. It's the third fundamental cause of all our social problems, according to some social commentators, alongside ignorance and apathy. Greed causes so many of the problems we face as a society. It's been a problem for years, but let me not keep this at an arm's length. Because it's my problem. Dare I say it, it's your problem, it's our problem. 
It's a 21st century problem. But as I say, it's been around for years. And Jesus exposes it. He nails it in Luke chapter 12. So if you have a Bible, can I invite you to to turn back to what Paul read for us? Luke chapter 12. We're just going to look through these verses from 13 to 21. And what we discover is that Jesus finds himself in a crowd. And there's nothing unusual about that. Jesus is often surrounded by crowds. But look across at verse 1 of chapter 12. Because this is a unique crowd. It's huge. It actually says there there were thousands in this crowd. And you jump down to verse 12. You discover that one of the crowd, a man, asks, or rather... He actually instructs Jesus, which is a bit of a cheek. He instructs Jesus to sort out a specific problem. The man has been left an inheritance. Now, it's possibly money. Although, given this particular time, it was more likely to have been land. But when it came to splitting it up or dividing it between him and his brother, there's a problem. They couldn't agree. Heels have been dug in. And so some third-party intervention appears to be necessary. You see, financial issues within a family context are often a recipe for tension, aren't they? Especially when it comes to an inheritance. So there's nothing surprising about this dilemma. The crowd who surrounded Jesus that day could identify with this man's problem in the same way that many of us can in our situation. And Jesus' initial response is pretty straightforward. He says, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? And what Jesus was really saying here is that this is not a decision for a rabbi to take. You have addressed me as teacher, and that's what I am. But this is not a decision for a rabbi to take. There were laws in place. Jewish laws had been put in place to sort this sort of an issue out. But Jesus doesn't just leave it at that. Because although there was a presenting problem, this was a dispute between two brothers over an inheritance, Jesus knew there was a deeper issue. Jesus knew that there was something that lurked beneath the surface that needed to be addressed. And so he immediately adds those heart-searching comments in verse 15. It starts, watch out, and then he says these two phrases, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And one of the really unsettling things you discover about Jesus was this, and it still is the case, that he has this uncomfortable ability to see into people's hearts and minds. Jesus had this capacity to expose attitudes, to see beyond the surface, behind the masks, Behind the external, behind the exterior, Jesus was able to see the motives. And so rather than give this man what he wants, Jesus cuts to what is important. And he confronts the real issue, and the real issue is greed. And what Jesus does here at this moment, and what he often does, is that he grabs the opportunity to teach And in this situation that Jesus finds himself in, he sees this as an opportunity to teach all those within earshot a lesson about the problem of greed. A lesson to emphasize that our lives, and this must have disturbed them then as it disturbs us now, our lives are not defined 
by the accumulation and the abundance of material possessions that we own, that we buy, that we exchange, that we replace, that we renew, and that we cram into our lives. But in our Western European culture, never mind this first century Palestinian culture, this was an alternative perspective. Because let's be honest for a moment. That second phrase jars a little with us. It jars, or at least it profoundly challenges our thinking. Because our society actually says that a man's life does, let's get rid of the word not, a man's life does consist in the abundance of his possessions. That's what reflects popular thinking. And our society endorses this idea at every opportunity it's given. So we're bombarded with messages that more, that the latest, that bigger is always better. Advertisers spend millions trying to convince us that unless we buy their latest product and their newest product and their more advanced product, that we'll never be satisfied, we'll never be fulfilled, we'll never be as comfortable as we could be. And the reality is that it appears to be working. Our society is buying into it. And so we accumulate, I accumulate, and I want to personalize this this evening. I accumulate, I surround myself with an abundance of possessions that, let's be honest, I don't actually need. I want, but I don't actually need them. And even if we can't afford it, well, that doesn't matter because credit's available. And even if you plunge into debt, so what? Isn't everybody in debt? You not only now dress to impress, you possess to impress. Having is everything. And so we do judge success. And we do judge fulfillment and contentment on the abundance of our possessions. And therefore, this is an alternative counter-cultural phrase that Jesus injects. And shares with this crowd. A man's life, says Jesus, does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. But as you say that in our society, increasingly that doesn't convince anyone. Or at least it doesn't until you begin to explore what did Jesus actually mean by the word life in verse 15. Look at this. Jesus said a man's life does not consist. The word that Jesus uses, as I understand it, is zoe. It's a special word meaning a life that satisfies. A rich life. Zoe life is life in all its fullness. And Jesus knew more than anyone else that money and possessions would never really deliver that quality of life despite how much we try to convince ourselves that they will. He knows, Jesus knew this, and we have discovered this, that no matter how much we cram into our lives, we never reach that place where enough is enough. A couple of years ago, I read that over three quarters of Americans now believe that the American dream is harder to attain than ever before. Those with household incomes under $25,000 reckon it would take $54,000 to live the dream. Those with a household income of $100,000 said that it would take $192,000 
to live the American dream. And the point is this, enough is never enough. The desire for more is insatiable, and we know that. We struggle to find contentment. I do. Remember back to the words of the searcher, a series we looked at in Ecclesiastes. Those who love money will never have enough. How often do we need to hear this? Those who love wealth are never satisfied with their income. 3,000 years after that statement was first made, and it still reflects reality. Greed, according to the ultimate storyteller, the one who came to give us Zoe life, life in all its fullness, greed, says Jesus, messes with that quality of life. How much stuff you have will never give you real Zoe, despite the illusion and the relentless messages that come from living in a material world. And Jesus then launches into the parable because he wants to earth this and he wants to develop this and he wants to speak into this guy's life who has come with this problem. And so he begins to tell a story. And he tells the story of a rich entrepreneur whose life revolved around material things and he was a genuine success story. His business was doing really well. It was growing. And so he asks a question in verse 17. What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Now Jesus, as we know, he wasn't having a go at success. Working hard, doing well is never a problem for Jesus. It's not a problem that the Bible addresses. Good, honest production of wealth is never a sin. The real issue here, and it remains the critical issue for anyone in that position, is how do you actually handle what you have? How do you handle your wealth? And we are wealthy in this context compared to others. Even speaking to someone before the service tonight who's just returned from a place, having spent three weeks working with people who are in a very different place materially than we are. We are wealthy. And the rich guy asks himself the right question. What shall I do with all this extra stuff I have? And let's not be too hard on him, because this is a great question to ask when you get a pay raise. It's a great question to ask when you inherit some extra cash, when you receive the windfall. Did this guy need it? Probably not. Could he have given some of it away? Definitely. And you have to remember that those who were listening to this story... That crowd would have expected this man, yes, to store up his extra possessions, but for what reason? To share with the community. Just like it had happened back in the days of Joseph in Egypt. If you're given lots, if you're blessed with lots, you don't just keep it for yourself, you share it with others. But instead, in this story, greed kicks in. And so he does choose to hoard it. And Jesus tells of this rich entrepreneur becoming selfish. And he says, listen, I'm going to tear down what I have. I'm going to build bigger. I'm going to store more. I'm going to accumulate excess. And this was his fatal flaw. Not his success, but his attitude to it. And his flaw was his use of his riches. God has no problem with our money, but how we feel about it. The love of it can be the defining issue because it's the love of money that is the root of so many problems. 
The guy didn't need an extra income, but the temptation to upgrade and to change and to step up and to get more was huge. And it still is. And here we have someone who's totally obsessed by himself. And the sense of just how self-centered he is comes across in how Jesus tells the story. Because what I want you to do is notice how many times I or my appears in the text. In the space of three verses, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barn, store my grain and my goods, and I'll say to myself, and it's all about me, me, me. It's about what I want. It's about my desires. It's about my wishes. It's all about me at the center of my life. And I know it's a little trite to say it, but I at the center, is at the center of sin, and it captures a fact Because sin in its rawest form is doing things my way. It's all about me. Forget God. Replace God. Let's set myself at the center of the universe. And as far as this guy was concerned, self came first. And nobody else and nothing else figured in his calculations. And as Eugene Peterson was commenting on this parable, he said this, The parable of the barn builder is an expose of greed, using what we have to get more instead of giving more away. Using our position or goods as a means of getting impersonal power rather than giving love away. God had blessed him. He was blessed He was rich. But the problem was, he was greedy. He wanted it all for himself. And this certain young man wanted it for himself and he became increasingly isolated from others and isolated from their needs. And that's one of the great dangers with wealth. It isolates. You become so busy at accumulating more that you are able somehow, somehow, and I am often able to do this, ignore the cries of the hungry and those in need and those who have so much less than I have and who live in such poverty. But hang on a minute, because as you read this story, surely as you look at verse 19, you can say, this is just someone who wanted security. I'll say to myself, it says, I have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Humanity's three greatest needs are what? Love, security, and significance. So is this not just an example of a regular guy making reasonable plans for his future? Is there a problem with that? Seemingly not. And this is where Jesus doesn't mince his words And this is where Jesus injects one of those twists that are part and parcel of virtually every single parable he tells. Here's the sting in the tail. Here's the bit that would have blindsided everybody listening to Jesus who were part of this crowd. You fool. And surely that's a bit strong. You fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. And Jesus here wasn't attempting to insult the man by calling him a fool. And if we call someone a fool, that does tend to be our intention. But biblically, there's a deeper meaning behind this label, a spiritual undertone. You take a look at this verse from the Psalms. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And this is why Jesus uses that word in this story to describe this farmer, not to rubbish him. Jesus never rubbishes anybody. 
But to highlight the critical fact that living this me-centered, greedy life without reference to God and without reference to others and to the bigger picture, that is total foolishness. Because death is inevitable. And because death is inevitable, reality is going to come crashing into your world. If what we are doing with our lives and our money and our possessions doesn't involve God, then we are taking a risk that can only be described as foolish. This man, he thought that he was in control of his own life. And so he had plenty of good things stored up for many years. The problem was, and here's the ironic twist, this guy didn't have many years. His life was about to end this very night. And people in good health never expect to die. We know that. And yet what does it say in Proverbs 27.1? Do not boast about tomorrow. For you do not know what a day may bring forth. This guy in this story had no tomorrow. Death was about to invade unexpectedly. And then what? Because apparently, although he had given lots of thought to life before death, he hadn't given any serious thought to life after death. And how Jesus actually words this is fascinating. Look at verse 20. This very night, your life, or as some translations capture it, your soul will be demanded from you or is required of you. You can't bring all the produce and the bigger barns with you because naked you come into this world and naked you're going to leave. You take nothing with you other than, and this is the case, other than the condition of your soul. The condition of our bank balances, our property assets, all the possessions we have will at one level mean absolutely nothing because everybody else gets to enjoy them. In the parable, Jesus asks the question, then who will get? Who will get what you've prepared for yourself? Or going back to the searcher in Ecclesiastes, how did he put it? I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. You know, again, nowhere in the Bible does it say it's wrong to be rich. Nowhere in the Bible does it say we shouldn't have. But the issue is, how tightly do we hold on to what we've been given? How much energy do we invest in wanting more? And the reason we want more, if we're honest, if we strip it all back, is for ourselves. And it's whenever we think that what we have belongs to us, that that's whenever we have a real problem. That's whenever we hit a major spiritual crisis because anything we have, and again, clear, explicit biblical teaching, anything we have is God's in the first place. We are simply stewards of what we've been given and we've got to share it and we've got to keep a loose grip on it. And then Jesus finishes this parable with what is a stark comment. This is how it will be for those who store up for themselves but are not rich towards God. It's one of those phrases that that I find puzzling at one level. Because what does it actually mean to be rich towards God? We know what it means to be materially rich. But what does it actually mean to be rich towards God? And this is now a direct echo 
of the teaching that Jesus gave as part of his infamous Sermon on the Mount, where he writes, Do not, or he speaks, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And again, the question I keep coming back to when I read things like that is, how do you store up treasures in heaven? What does it actually mean to live like that? I mean, those are phrases we use all the time. We hear in church all the time. But what does it actually mean? How do I tomorrow go about storing up treasures in heaven? I know how I go about accumulating lots of stuff on earth. But how do I go about storing up treasure in heaven? How do I become rich towards God? Because of all my treasure is situated here. And if I remain poor towards God then whenever this night arrives, which it will for every one of us, according to Jesus, we're in a perilous condition. And I know that sounds heavy and maybe even slightly uh, frightening for some, but I can't duck the teaching of God. We live at a time when people pour all their energies and resources into sorting out life here and now. And that's understandable. And I don't want to stand in judgment of people who do that. Because we do live in a material world where it is really hard to see beyond. Where it is really hard to climb above. Where it's really hard to swim about, to swim against the culture. It's really hard to live an alternative lifestyle in 21st century Western Europe. But unless we give serious thought to what does it actually mean to be rich towards God what does it actually mean to store up treasure in heaven then I realize that I will be left with a level of regret that words cannot express and as I come to the end of this little section as I often find with the Bible I want it to say more I want to know what that guy thought of the story did the guy who had the problem with the inheritance and his brother Was he able to hear that story and apply it to himself? Doesn't say. Was he able to make the connections that Jesus was making by telling this story about his greed? The Bible doesn't actually say. But I suppose the deeper question, the bigger issue for me, is not what did this guy do in response to the story Jesus told. The issue is what do I do? What do I do with a story like this? As I walk out of here and as I walk into a new week, how do I process what this says? What are you and I living for? How do we define a rich life? Where is my treasure? How does God and others feature in the decisions I make regarding my money and my possessions? What what is the condition of my soul this evening? And what happens if tonight is the night and just a prayer as we close and I came across this written by someone in response to this parable and I'd like to use it as we close our service and then we are going to sing one final song but here's the prayer God thank you for your blessings thank you for our wealth thank you for our community Let us not turn your blessings into curses. Let us not hoard your wealth as if it's ours. Let us not focus on ourselves 
but each other. God, thank you for this story. Thank you for the barns we already have. Thank you for our full stomachs. Let us tell this story with humility. Let us not be afraid of empty barns. Turn our ears to empty stomachs and hearts. God, thank you for your story. Thank you for the grace which we feel. Thank you for your promise of abundance. Let us not turn your story into selfishness. Allow our failure to highlight your grace. May we build different kinds of barns. May we throw different kinds of parties. God, even though we are poor, let us make many rich. Even though we are sorrowful, let us always rejoice. And even though we have nothing, may we possess everything.